You're listening to Partnernomics Podcast, where we discuss the art and science of developing successful strategic partnerships. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics solutions, visit Partnernomics.com. Welcome back to another episode of Partnernomics Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Brigman. And on today's show, we have Sunir Shah with us. Sunir, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. You just jumped right into this, so. Hey, why not? Let's have at it. That's how we, that's how we roll down here in the States. So our buddy Sunir is from, uh, from the land up north, up in Canada. Is it uh, nice and cold up there? I just shoveled the snow this morning. It took me an hour. I'm in Toronto. <laughs> but to me, like, honestly, you know, this is the only time I go outside now. I'm a hermit. I live in this room. Uh, and it's all, it's, oh, I'm always, it's where I always am. All the videos of me have this background because this is where I always am now. Uh, it is ridiculous. But. I understand. This is my background too. So I, I totally understand. So uh, Sunir is the CEO of AppBind and he is also the president and the founder of an awesome organization, CSA. So the Cloud Software Associates. So if you live in the software space and you're not a member or not familiar with CSA, you definitely need to, to get in there. But Sunir, thanks for your time. I appreciate you jumping on here and chatting with us. Absolutely. I mean, you are the one of the few people who can nerd out about partnerships as much as I can. And so I, I really enjoy talking with you. So thanks for having me. Yeah, likewise. I've enjoyed the collaboration. Look forward to, to, to many years into the future. But Sunir, I'd love to just start with, let's talk about Sunir. Let's, uh, let's figure out who Sunir is and specifically just your background. What has your career entailed so far? And then what has what has landed you in this seat to be running a company and, and founding and running your organization? I think we should give your audience a little bit of a disclaimer. I was just saying this in the prep that he gave me a questionnaire beforehand. And uh, I like a jerk. I wrote down on every topic around partnerships, super expert killer. So I gave Mark nothing to work with. So that's why I made sure that I prioritized you and talked to you first, because if you have all the answers, I've, I've got some questions for you. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm pretty arrogant. No, I'm kidding. So I'm Canadian. They don't brag. So no, here's my background. So I'm a computer scientist. That's my soul. I'm a, I, I started coding when I was four. Uh, when I was 16, I had the opportunity, but I didn't take it because my parents said absolutely no uh, to go work for Microsoft on the Windows NT kernel because I was like really deep in, in the weeds uh, of like embedded systems programming when I was 16. I had a good childhood in that way, I guess. I don't know. Was not the coolest, but it was fun for me. Um, but anyway, if I did that, I would have been a Microsoft millionaire. We would never be talking. I would be flying planes or something. That wouldn't um, be all bad. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. I tell my wife this every so often. She said, but you wouldn't have met me. I'm like, a Microsoft millionaire? <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was um, I started my career. I really started my career. I was 18. I, like, literally two days after high school graduation, I was out of there. I grew up in a town called Deep River, Ontario. Uh, and it was a small town, a nuclear research town, kind of like Lawrence Livermore. Um, and it was great. I mean, great technology was there. We had, the internet was there from the early days. So that helped me get on board, but small. And I want to get out of there and, and see what I could do. And this is during the dot-com, like 1997. So I started working as a software developer when I was 18, actually, at this Microsoft shop. Uh, you know, they were doing licensed software. And even then, when I was 18, I was naive, but, you know, I could see how it worked. And, you know, it was a small place. The salespeople and the president were, like, next to me. And, you know, I cut my teeth and set my expectations for the industry based on 
you know, it, it was just like any contracting job, you know, customers would come to us with a problem and we would go and find the parts, like whether it's a computer and, and the networking or the Windows licenses and SDKs we buy all at you know, wholesale, make a system, implement it, uh, sell the training, the training services and get the maintenance contracts. It was just like a general contractor, like for the last, you know, 10,000 years of human history, that was all pretty normal. I mean, just like a general contractor would re renovate your house you know, maybe it'll ask you what what co what color carpet and tiles you wanted, but they would get all the drywall and the wood and the tacks and the pipes and the conduit and everything. They wouldn't think about it. And then, you know, as I grew up, I ended up, you know, ended up in marketing through like say, a series of unfortunate life decisions. Um, but it was it was it was motivated to figure out what was going wrong on the business side of .com. So I migrated from I, I kept asking, let me talk to more customers. So I ended up in marketing out of the software development. And I started the marketing teams at FreshBooks and then actually later uh, Olark Live Chat. Uh, but I gravitated towards partnerships. So Olark, if you don't know it, is an invoicing tool for uh, creative web agencies and freelancers. And these, of course, are service partners is how many of us would think about them. So I've talked to probably 10,000 you know, agencies in my career and also like you know, MSPs and IT consultants, all, any of these service partners. What really blew my mind when I was at FreshBooks uh, was as soon as I working with these companies, first, they were all suffering because of the subscription era. Like were, it was harder for them to find uh, channels for revenue. And you know what should have been the easiest sale, honestly, is when a partner comes to you, like, hey, I love your product. How do I get it for my customers? Honestly, we used to just like, where do I ship it to you? <laughs> we'll, invo we'll invoice you later. And you're like, good luck to you. Uh, and it was great. I mean, but with subscriptions, it was a nightmare, always the hardest sale. Like weeks, months would go by before you get one partner on board because it was three problems. Like problem number one was the data. Customers have to own their own data, right? But so with a subscription, how do you create accounts for them that you can manage that the customer's own and control? And number two was the billing. You know, subscriptions change price all the time, like all the time. So every month you have to, as a partner, track those expenses if you put your credit card in there because uh, you might, you know, you might lose money. You have to be watch it like a hawk. And of course, the overhead of bookkeeping overwhelms any commissions a vendor will ever give you. And subscriptions renew, but your customers don't, they leave you, right? And so what happens? Like a lot of people lose track. So 30, 60, 90, day, 90 days later, you get dinged until you can kill the subscription. Or my favorite are the annuals that come around, you know, months later, like, Merry Christmas, here's a thousand dollar charge. I'm like, oh crap, I haven't talked to this customer for seven months. What am I gonna do? And so, you know, I, I heard these stories at FreshBooks and I, we spent like, you know, I was running the platform team and the partnerships team. And we had a fair number of engineers. I was getting close to like 400,000 Canadian we we're spending on trying to build up a new billing system for the channel. And we had to kill it because it was just a ludicrous waste of engineering resources. FreshBooks, did they start off there? Was there sales approach originally? Was it just traditional direct sales? You know, they're going after knocking on doors and then they implemented a, a channel program. Well, I started the marketing team there. And so uh, it was all digital, uh, you would think. But actually, we spent a lot of time, funny enough, knocking on doors. Uh, not literally doors, but we, I spent the first year and a half there, uh, literally flying to like every place in the United States. I've been to like 20 of the top 25 metropolitan areas in the United States. Uh, and we would like have customer dinners. And we, we did knock on customer doors, the office doors, at least, and <laughs> go meet them. I and mean, we met, met community leaders. It's funny how. Uh, how weird that sounds like in the age of the internet and COVID, of course, you would never do that. But, you know, what our belief was, even in that age, people were, were already feeling disintermediated because of the internet. And if you just showed up in person, people would build a relationship with you. And those relationships are what carry you forward in a way uh, that an email or LinkedIn mail doesn't. 
so we, we did actually a lot of that. We actually took, rented an RV um, from Miami and we went all the way to Austin for South by Southwest. Uh, the, the CEO and my coworker and I and a videographer, and we just went to cost like cities all around. That sounds all, like fun. You signed I, me up for that trip. Oh God, it was disgusting. I mean, it's, it's, it's too much time with the CEO. I'm just saying. I mean, Mike's a friend of mine, but you know, we all started to stink after a while. Well, especially being cooped up in an RV for quite a while. That's that that would get old pretty quick. Oh, dedication. We, we but that's what we did. We broke through. Uh, you know, FreshBooks. Uh, you know, we you know we did a lot of interesting things there to give send our message out, build relationships, and a lot of what we were doing was relationship based marketing, which is my thing. Now we also did all the ads and all the other stuff, which was not my thing. And we hired a VP marketing, uh, Mitch, who's a friend of mine. He actually lives in my neighborhood over here. He's a great guy uh, to do all that stuff. And then we would go ahead and do all this relationship work. But out of the relationships work came their partnerships because with enough relationship work comes opportunities like other companies. And that really is my, my shtick. I mean, to be honest, I learned partnerships. I learned marketing through a political campaign, uh, a very brief political campaign. I campaigned for John Manley uh, for le leader of the party against Paul Martin because I had nothing better to do. I lived in Ottawa and it was the dot-com bust. And I thought, let's try something different. Uh, but, you know, honestly, a lot of my marketing skills comes from the skills I learned on that political campaign, uh, which were really interesting to me. And I kind of view, I kind of view a lot of partnerships as, uh, I wouldn't say a political campaign, but it's kind of like that, a relationship marketing game where you're trying to build relationships with people, convince them to, you know, view you uh, as someone they can trust and they want to, you know, help you. I, I actually had this metric at FreshBooks my partner team. It was ludicrous. It was a, it was a little. It was a heart. Was, the metric was was fist, like I, I drew a heart, and that was a metric we had on the wall. And what did, what did that mean? It was it was hearts won. And because <laughs> I'm crazy like this, I told the team like, listen, you know, uh, you know, if, if you look at partners only of like just how much revenue you're driving at at them, you're not really understanding what partners are all about. Like, what are partners all about? The customer, you know. It's like it's crossing the chasm, right? So if you read Jeffrey Moore, a customer, a market is a is a defined group of people who refer to each other for purchasing decisions. Those references are not just word of mouth marketing. They're like wherever the customer looks for information related to buying. So it could be a magazine, it could be a search ad, it could be a Reddit group. Sure, it could be uh, it could be word of mouth. It could be a service partner. It could be another piece of software that they're using. It's wherever they're looking, and some of those reference points or other companies that you need to negotiate with on a, on a relationship level. And that's where the partner team fits in. You know, if you can't buy an ad or you can't buy your way in there, you're gonna have to like build a relationship. And so, you know, what you really want is for those reference points to recommend you to the customer and you can, you can run tactical campaigns with them, right? But when you've won their heart is when they will, they will of their own volition re recommend you to their customers because they like you. <laughs> And they just think of you first and you've won their hearts because you've won them over. And once you've done that, you know, that it snowballs because they recommend you to other people like them. Right. And then you start building enough momentum. You can't beat a company that has won the hearts of the market. I mean, think about that. Like you can't absolutely cannot. And there's only one team at your company who's capable of doing that. And that's the partner team. And it really breaks my heart looking at partner teams who are valued at just dollars. I'm like, yeah, but the problem is your partners, you, you, you've, you've, 
imagine treating your, 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 it's all like dating. So to me, imagine treating your partner as it was just, let's say, let's be nice on this podcast, just dollars, if you know what I mean. Uh, they're just not gonna... income. <laughs> yeah. Just income. spousal income. Yeah, in and out come. There we go. Uh, so they, <laughs> you just treat them like that. Yeah, it's uh, interesting that you point that out. I actually recently was speaking with uh, Jay McBain, a, a great resource for us partnering people, us partnering professionals, you know, and he talks so much about the ecosystem. And, you know, what I hear you saying is business lead leaders need to understand the ecosystem or ecosystems that they're playing in. And it's changing, but understand the players in those ecosystems because any other player in there can be an avenue for a relationship and opportunities. And that's probably different than what, you know, than how business leaders have thought about business over the past decade or two. Would you agree? I mean, I think business leaders are always focused on dollars because they are freaking out. So when I was consulting, so I left Olark when I had my third kid and I just wanted to have some time back in my life. And so I started, I was much further along in my career. Uh, I had been an executive and now I was now talking at the C-level and a lot of my people I knew through the trade association, the cloud software association were at the C-level. And, you know, and I would start consulting for them around partnerships, but really it was, they just needed help at the executive level. And they were all freaking out. Like everyone's freaking out all the time. Like that's, that's true. Like everyone's feeling anxiety. And I'd ask them privately, you know, come on, what is your goal? What is your, what is the goal? And they said more revenue. I'm like, come on, man, that's not a goal. That's an outcome. It's like, okay, more MRR. It's the same thing. Monthly recurring revenue is still revenue. Okay. okay. And I, I think the, the problem is that that's how they're evaluated, right? Uh, CEOs, it's like, because the investors, they don't care how you make the revenue. They just want ROI and they're dollar oriented. The problem is, the problem is, is that your customers are the ones with the money. And you only, like, wherever you're looking is where you're going. If you ever drive, you know, wherever you look is where the car is going. If you're only looking at revenue, that means you're only looking at your bank account. The problem is your bank account already has all your money and it's getting less and less every month, right? So the place to look for more money are the customers and to be truly empathetic with them. And in, I found in partnerships, because I mean, I talk to lots of partnership people just like you do, a lot of them are trapped in these situations where they actually don't understand what they're doing with partners from the point of view of customers. And if anyone who's ever experienced the idea of pushing sales quotas down to their partners, how that doesn't really work or pisses them off or eventually blows up your channel and so it doesn't so it doesn't function anymore it's because what you've done is taken the anxiety like anxiety is infectious the anxiety of your your board to your ceo to your vp to you and then you've taken your anxiety and pushed it to the partner the problem is of course that uh when the partner's not a customer right there and they don't care about you at all like, you're not even remotely important to them who's important to them their customers like they're selling their stuff to their customers and they have their own position about what they're doing and all you are is fitting into their sale. I mean, you're a small part of their sale and you need to know where your position is and how it supports their sale and be empathetic about the people who are closest to the customer and what they need from you. Because ultimately it comes down to the, what the customer needs and why the customer needs all of it, not just, just you or the partner, right? That's the partnering part. But, you know, CEOs can't see that because, you know, that's not how they're oriented. They're oriented around, around the bank account, a lot of them. Um, you know, I'm fortunate to have worked for CEOs like you know, Mike at FreshBooks who does think about this stuff quite, quite adamantly. But a lot of us, 
you know, haven't. So like you said, yeah. the, the revenues, that's the outcome, right? That's, that's the results, but it's more of what is on the front end? What is predictive? What are the actions that we can take today? I mean, you talked a lot about, or what I was hearing you say is it's about the solution. You know, it's a, it's about that jobs to be done. I think you even talked about that uh, in one of our earlier conversations about, you know, that, that Clayton Christensen approach. What, how can we make the easy button bigger for our clients? Or I mean, what is the problem? Where is the problem? Is it, is it a marketing? Is it um, an awareness thing? Or is it pricing? Is it things could be complicated? Or does our solution just not meet the mark? Those are proactive ways. Those are things that can be adjusted that get to the revenue. But totally agree with you. If, if the revenue is not right, you got to figure out how, how do you fix the revenue? There's a lot of different ways to do that, but it's everything upstream. Let me tell you, let me tell you a story that's relevant to what I'm doing now with AppBind uh, about this exact problem. So what we, AppBind does is we solve uh, partner billing issues in channel. That, that's a boring line, but let me tell you the human story about this. So like I said, subscriptions are hard to sell because of the data and the ongoing billing. And so what happens is the like most of these agencies end up referring the customers, like getting the customers to buy from the vendor and they hate it. And I had this experience, like I, like I, after I left Olark, I started consulting and I had this client and he was a fashion retailer in the UK. And uh, he, was he was standing up a bricks and mortar store at the same time he was doing the e-commerce site and I was doing the analytics uh, consulting for him. So, you know, weeks, every week I'd ask him to sign up for all the subscriptions because I didn't want to buy them, right? Uh, you know, and it was, all, it was all his data and the recurring billing, right? And of course, I was talking to companies like Amplitude who just wanted me to like shove these sales down the pipe, but I couldn't do it because I didn't want to do it. It didn't fit the way I was selling. So, you know, weeks go by, he didn't sign up for everything. Three days before the, the launch, he's asking me, Sneer, why isn't anything getting done? Like, why is nothing done? In fact, I said, well, because I asked you to sign up for stuff because that made sense from my point of view, but not from his point of view. Do you think analytics was his highest priority? He's buying clothes and making them and building up a store. And there's a lot of things going on in his life, but he used to get it, get it done. He was intense. He was a get it done kind of person. So he said, let's get a video call and let's just sort it out. So I'm on a video call and I effectively infantilized him. I basically said, you know, click here, put your email address in here, put your password in here, put your credit card in here, and then put my email address in here to invite me, you know, step by step. I can just see him getting more and more infuriated, right, about what was going on. And what, what uh, you know, what he was telling me, uh, and he basically yelled it at me, was his expectations for me was that I would just take care of it. He said, Sneer, my, my, my plumber is not making me buy my own pipes. You know, you're making working with you is generated more work for me than you know not working with you. This is something you should have done. And he was very clear, like what his expectations were. And what I learned from that, you know, and, and this is the life of a of a service agency, and this is where the technology companies didn't understand it, you know, and I didn't understand it until I had this experience. Is like my job was to take this anxiety and pain away from the client and just deal with it. I was supposed to take care of the customer, right? And what instead I, I, I said, no, I refused the call. You know, I, I didn't want to do it because it was risk for me. I didn't want to take it on. Right. And I just made it riskier for the client and I made it worse for the client. In fact, that I helped him. And so he got mad and he fired me. Uh, but like, what did I do? I wasted his time. I wasted my own time too. I confused him, slowed down the project. Right. And I didn't take care of the technology, which means I didn't keep, keep that client. And I, I could have actually sold him what he wanted me to do. It's like basically 
begging me to just manage the technology for him, get to manage services, have these long-term retainers. And I would have had the opportunity, not only managing the stack over time for him to sell more things if I wanted to. Uh, you know, I'm kind of glad I didn't do that because I wouldn't have had AppLine. It would be a successful agency right now, right? But that moment realized like, what was the fear that was driving me to not sell it? You know, what was motivating me to sell it? You know, how do I fix that? And what happens in the channel, and this is where I want to bring it back to like understanding from the customer's point of view. This is a customer who would never buy analytics software ever because he does not care. He's building a bricks and mortar store, but he needed the e-commerce site. An e-commerce contractor came to me, a subcontracted, right? And it all came together because it was driven by customer needs first. That's the only reason I'm selling anything. It's a customer demanded it. And what I needed as a partner is some simple way of just handling it for him right, without bothering him. And what SaaS companies always demand is a direct relationship with the customer to bother that customer. The customers just can't handle it. Like, can you imagine, can you imagine like a gasket company telling the plumber, no, you can't sell the gaskets to the customer. You have to get them to talk to us. I mean, your, your goddamn gasket, it's a gasket. It's a rubber ring. I mean, what's going, it's a simple piece of technology. Like, why are we talking to you? You know, something I can handle. And like, there's all sorts of crazy things that happen in subscription land. Like a lot of these enterprise sales inside sales team, they do haggle pricing, which is hilarious to me. Uh, you know, so they haggle for no reason. Everyone knows they're going to knock the price down. It's always a game at the end of the quarter. Like, okay, whatever, right? They haggle price, but they, then they expect to do the same thing in the channel, but the channel is selling time and their service. And they're supposed to take care of things to the client without bothering them. So you give them a sales motion that is, is completely antagonistic to their fundamental function that channel and these channel managers like how do i solve this problem well you have to go to sales and you have to have rack rates that they are predictable they're just like here's the greater prices and that's it and it's like well that's not where we're selling over here right that's over there that's your direct sales you can bother your clients as much you can annoy them as much as possible in direct you know whatever you want to do right but in the channel you don't have that luxury because your channel partners you know they're they sell differently they're different you have to fit from their point of view, because the customer is only buying from the partner because they can't think about you. They don't want to. And that's being empathetic from the customer, all the way from the customer through the partner chain to you. Remember, you're the least important part of that sale from the customer's point of view, right? And you have to work your way closer to that customer, right? And you actually become a better company as a result, I'll tell you, but that's a whole other story. But that, that is what, uh, that is the state of affairs in partnerships. And maybe it's always been that way, honestly. Um, but that's something we can improve. I mean, why do we need to continue making those same mistakes? That's kind of my question. But is that experiences that, that you went through, is that the impetus of AppBind? I mean, is that the, Absolutely. the what you saw problem? This is a way that we can solve it. And then you, as an entrepreneur, you started heading down that, heading down that path to give business owners an easy button. Absolutely. I mean, all these service partners want is to get these managed services and be able, and more importantly, to take care of their clients. Uh, they just want to say yes. They don't. They want to stop saying no. They want to say yes. And the problem is that they're terrified, legitimately, of getting stuck in the customer subscription mess because it's awful. It's an awful experience for everybody, right? And so what AppBite does is, I mean, I'll just the simple mechanic is you don't ever want to put your email address or your credit card in a customer subscription. So what we do is we create a virtual email address and a virtual credit card that you can put in instead of your own, right? And then it forwards everything to you and your customers so that you, you can manage it, but the customer owns and controls it. it. It's a simple idea, difficult to implement, but simple idea. And it gives all sorts of wonderful things. Like you can go ahead and bring in any technology now without feeling that you're in the pinch. And the customer always feels like they own everything because everything can be transferred directly into their control with a button. And like, so everyone feels happier 
And it's just like if I bought the software in a box, like this is how I grew up when I was 18. You used to buy stuff in boxes and they'd ship it to you and then you'd implement it and pass it on to the customer. You know, with that point, now that is again possible, right? And the way things are supposed to be done. But that gives these service companies the opportunity to make more money, which means, and bring in more technology, which means that they'll sell more technology and this channel will end up growing uh, from $20 billion to, you know, by 2030, it's going to be at least $500 billion. But how to get there, you need to have something like this. So Nir, what, what do you think, what does the future hold for this, this world of SaaS? I mean, kind of where, where, do you, where do you see that we were 10 years ago? Where are we at now? And then from your seat, how is that going to change over say the next five years or beyond? So here's an interesting thing. So I'm raising money for AppBind right now. Uh, so I'm talking to a lot of investors. Uh, and there was one investor. <laughs> it's, I'm not going to name the venture capital fund, but they were the oldest venture capital fund in, the, in North America. So that, there's only one of those. So I'm sure you can figure out. <laughs> I've <laughs> got an idea. Yeah, she was a partner there. And she was really into the Salesforce ecosystem, which is fair enough. Uh, and I was telling her about AppBind. And uh, this, this is actually like a year ago, I was talking to her when we hadn't cleaned up our pitch. Now it's clear, but uh, I was explaining to her, you know, that, you know, Salesforce is no longer the number one B2B SaaS company. And she was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, like Microsoft's the biggest B2B SaaS company. And her, she was like, Microsoft? Like as if, it sounded like she'd never heard of Microsoft. I know what she meant. <laughs> I think that's immediately the reaction, like the shock, Microsoft. But I mean, obviously she knows Microsoft, but she was like, Microsoft's a B2B SaaS company. Um, like, and this is kind of like what's happening in, in, in SaaS is Microsoft is a SaaS company and they are the largest SaaS company, B2B SaaS company by far. And you, you, know, you look at the Slack Salesforce transaction that happened, a part, like, I imagine a large part of that was uh, due to Microsoft bringing teams to market and they, the way they got to market and disrupted Slack's revenue stream was they brought their channel to bear. People don't understand that Microsoft sells 96% of their revenue through partners. They make $120 billion of revenue in 2019 or something like that. You know, they alone, their partner revenue was larger than the entire B2B SaaS global revenue was Microsoft's own partner revenue, right? And, and their partners make $9 for every Microsoft dollar that Microsoft makes, which is a really important metric for Microsoft. They really cultivate it. They've actually improved it from $8 in 2010 to $9 in 2020. So they have a trillion dollar channel, which is about 1% of the world's economy. They are enormous, right? And counting them out has always been a mistake, but here they are, they're bringing it to bear. And so what's going to happen in five years is that this is going to happen. You know, uh, I mean, you look at Azure Marketplace and you go, well, they don't have anything really going on in Azure Marketplace today but they're Microsoft. Everyone's going to align to Microsoft because it's like trying to compete with Coca-Cola. You know, so, you know, Pepsi was able to compete in the United States because they figured out how to get distribution in the United States, but they, no one can compete with Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola is the only company that can send an atom anywhere on this planet whenever they feel like it. You know, there's a war going on, no problem. Coca-Cola is still coming. And you cannot stop Coca-Cola. They are everywhere. And they, they, have, the, they have locked up distribution and branding around the whole planet and that's why, you know, Snapple, remember number three, I think like they have to sell, right? Because, you know, you can't compete with Coca-Cola. They own distribution. That's a partnership game, right? That's what partnership people do is distribution and relationships. So what's going to happen for SaaS is that direct, SaaS has been forced to go direct sales and direct marketing because customers have to buy subscriptions directly because they were non-retailable. These subscriptions 
are non-retailable, but this is not sustainable. You can't phone and email and advertise to everyone on the planet. Like, even though we have a global market, you know, the growth of SaaS has been slower than software in the 1980s, which was only in the United States. I mean, if the national, like, like uh, Lotus One Two Three sold a hundred million dollars of Lotus One Two Three uh, in the first year in, in today's dollars, actually more than hundred million dollars in today's, like the, the path to 100 million ARR. I mean, Lotus did in one year, one, like, they built the software and they got to $100 million in one year because uh, they did partnerships with IBM and all the shopping malls and all the retailers and all the consultants. And that's not happening in SaaS. Right, and so what's going to have to happen is that uh, the channel will have to form. It's going to form. It's, it's not going to. You can't have a three hundred billion dollar global market just lay over and die. I'm sorry if Nicholas yeah. Carr is not correct there. It's going to fight back, and it's going to win because humans are humans. You're not going to buy direct. If you're in Indonesia, you're not going to call up the company in San Francisco, you know, expecting support. It makes no sense, you know. So that's what's going to happen. Yeah, you're exactly right. So here, I want you to talk a little bit about. Uh... The cloud um, software associates that you formed, kind of what, you know, why did you form it? When did you form it? And what is the value that uh, the members can expect to get whenever they come into, into that platform? Yeah, so the Cloud Software Association, and you can come and join at cloudsoftwareassociation.com. So what, what it is, it's, it's a network of all the SaaS partnership professionals. So we have 3,600 people in there. The board comprises of luminary from, you know, the VP of Salesforce App Exchange, Leslie Tom, and there's like Microsoft and, you know, Siddhartha Agarwal from Google and you name it. Uh, we are, the reason we built it is we're partnership people. You know, we all have the same needs. Uh, we need to know everybody. We need an instant network. We just need it because we trade on our relationships. Number two, uh, what we found is, of course, we gossip a lot about each other because the biggest risk, the biggest risk absolutely on a partnership deal is the other person's uh, emotional maturity, <laughs> to be honest. And so at the beginning of this thing, there was a lot more, you know, I don't know if we did all this work, but I think we had an impact, a lot more conflicts and emotional turmoil. Uh, but what we try to do is humanize each other uh, because honestly, everyone feels the same amount of fear and risk on both sides of the table of a deal. It's just the inability to, to admit it. Uh, and CSA allows us to talk and see each other as full people. That's actually a big value is that we're humans first before doing our job. Uh, so we do that a lot of just getting to know each other work. And also, you know, there's a lot of deals trading around and gossips about deals. It's important. And then skills, you know, so there aren't you know, you're often the only partnership person in your company or the only channel partnership person. So where do you learn partnership skills from? You know, you're coming from sales or product management or support or marketing and into the partnership role. You're going to have to learn from other partnership people. So when you're talking to other companies, you know, it's only the other partnership people you're working with, you know, who can teach you. And don't forget, if you're new to the job, like, again, your level of fear and imposter syndrome is enormous. And so you get into this game I call partnership poker, where you're like tight, tighten up and but you, you watch movies and you think that's how you negotiate or God help you if you have an MBA and you learn positional negotiation to your MBA course because those people have no idea what they're doing. Uh, please stop positional negotiating. But like they tighten up and they like get pugilistic and they're like, well, why are you fighting me? We're trying to work on something together. <laughs> so we work on that together as a group. And then finally, I, I admit it, we like partying. There's a lot of partner people. So there's a lot of cocktail parties. And so why do we incorporate? I swear to God, our, our, our bar bill one year, it was at South by Southwest actually. Uh, it was $32,000 and I was like, guys. That sounds expensive. Was that, uh, was that more than the RV rental to, to do the cross country trip? Uh, RV was 20, 
<laughs> okay, I'm pretty sure. And the bar bill was 32K. Was it the same? Yeah? Well, that is a pretty serious party. Oh yeah, I mean, we we bring it. I mean, we big organization. We had a three day we had a three day party. That's how big we are. We needed that much time to hang out. So, but, so you know, with uh, with the association, what what kind of resources do you provide? Is there a certain cadence to how people can connect and different you know, workshops or different things that uh, they can connect in to 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 learn as well as connect with other professionals? Yeah, good. Uh, it's actually a good plug for you, Mark. So. <laughs> I uh, so it that way. There you go. We have a very, very vibrant Slack community. It's like 2,000 people are in that. Uh, you can go, again, cloudsoftwareassociation.com slash join. Uh, you will find it. Uh, and so that we, we have a lot of our online community connecting there. We have a pretty active newsletter. I, we are, and we, you, we have an annual conference, obviously, that is uh, tabled for the year uh, called SAS Connect, where we bring everyone together. We have these cocktail parties at other conferences that bring people together, like Dreamforce and SAS Talk and Inbound and wherever. Uh, and then what we're doing, uh, our, our mandate is to help you grow, uh, as, a, as our, like our daily mission is to help you grow as a professional. So every week we have some kind of speaker, uh, one of these, uh, one of these ex, like some veteran in the industry. Uh, so next week we're having uh, Joni Deus from MailChimp. And, and Eric Chan from Chargebee, and they're talking about their different strategies of building their partnership teams. Um, you know, Eric did it from scratch, and Joni inherited one. And what did that even mean? And these two different, completely different organizations. So they're having it out um, debate style. We don't actually debate as partnership people, but I'm going to promote it like they're fighting because it's fun. But we actually do it to seek understanding from each other. It's, it's we're, you know, we're loving. Uh, so we're doing that. We have Mark. You're coming to do some workshops with us. So we have these master classes where for the uh, people who are on the professional development track around the, the CSA, they can come join. You know, like all of us are alone. So who do you talk through your problems with, right? So we have these uh, meetings where you can like, I have this problem. How can you circle around me friends and help me out with it? Uh, it's a very, there's nowhere else to do that. You know? uh, that's so true. I mean, I was, did a, a workshop at Andreessen Horowitz a while back and there was 70 partnering professionals in the room. And I asked them, where did you learn the art and science of partnering? Now, all these people are partnership gurus and some of the, the most high growth potential companies in the world. It's like, okay, so how did you guys, where did you guys learn, guys and gals, where did you learn the art and science of partnering? Every single one of them had the same answer. Trial and error, right? Trial and error. But we could do better by having a community, by connecting with other professionals. And like you said, so many times, a lot of these companies, there's only one partnering guru at the company, or maybe, you know, a couple at best, you know, if it's a smaller organization, we need to have ways to cross pollinate and to get these different ideas out there. So I love what you guys are doing with, um, with the cloud software associates, you guys are doing awesome work. Well, Sunir, uh, man, I can't thank you enough for your time. It's been awesome chatting with you and thank you for sharing your insights with us and uh, look forward to continuing the collaboration down, down the road. Absolutely. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. You know, like I told, said, of all the people I met, we can nerd out about partnerships endlessly. But, <laughs> we can. What I appreciate the most about you, though, is that you appreciate the human side of partnerships, which is, I think, the most exciting part. So, Well, man, it's, uh, I can't take credit for saying this, but we always say companies don't do business with companies. People do business with people. And it's all about people. It's about those relationships. And uh, that's what makes the world go round. That's what makes companies grow and organizations grow. That's what we believe. So, Sunir, thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. 
Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Partnernomics Podcast is brought to you by Partnernomics. Learn how to leverage the power of partnership. To listen to more episodes of Partnernomics Podcast, visit Partnernomics.com.